Is your money working as hard as it could be for your future? A decade ago, Robinhood changed the investment landscape when they pioneered commission-free stock trading. Today, they continue to offer innovative products to help users build a better financial future, like IRAs, ETFs, options for qualified traders, and much more. Take control of your financial future with Robinhood. Download the app or visit Robinhood.com to learn more. That's Robinhood.com. Disclosures. Investing involves risk. Other fees may apply. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIP. PC is a registered broker dealer. Good morning, Brew Daily Show. I'm Neil Fryman. And I'm Toby Howell. On today's pod, throw on that hoodie and crack open a LaCroix because we are going to showcase some startups trying to become the next big thing. Then the ripple effects of the recent Ozempic craze are spreading far and wide. We'll take you through some surprising industries impacted by the weight loss drug. It's Thursday, October 5th. Let's ride. To kick off the show, I want to quickly mention a new podcast that's coming to Morning Brew Nation. Longtime listeners of MBD might remember we did a special episode with Personal Finance Wiz Money with Katie a few months back. It was hugely successful. We all learned a ton. Well, Katie is teaming up with fellow Dynamo Tara Reed, the CEO of Apps Without Code, on a new podcast called Bossy. It's focused on women and entrepreneurship. It's going to be epic. The first episode is out this morning, and we definitely encourage you all to check it out. Yeah, Katie and Tara are the best. They know more about personal finance and business building than we could ever hope to. Funny story, too. They were in the office recently recording some episodes, and here's the crazy part. They actually had a hair and makeup team, so we were jealous. But honestly, please go check out Bossy. The first episode just dropped today. We love Katie and Tara, and we know you will, too. Before we jump into the news, though, we have a quick word from our sponsor, Yahoo Finance. Now, Neil, one thing we know as not financial advisors is that investing is hard, not just because it's hard to stay in the green, but because things like complicated jargon and information overload make it downright difficult to make smart choices. That's where Yahoo Finance comes in. They are your purple guiding light in a sea of darkness. That's right, Toby. And you can use that purple light to achieve financial prosperity, however you define it, one informed decision at a time. So even though the market might not be cooperating right now, and dang, it is not cooperating, at least Yahoo Finance gives you the tools you need to get ahead of the next bull wave whenever it may come. So after this pod, head to finance.yahoo.com. That's finance.yahoo.com. Let's jump into our top story of the day where we're checking in on an old friend, Ozempic. The diabetes drug turned miracle weight loss drug has frequently made headlines for the surprising alternative benefits it potentially offers like curbing addiction and improving cardiovascular health. So today we're gonna dive in even further and look at some of the ripple effects this drug is having across industries that you wouldn't expect. First up is the airline industry. Now, obviously, weight is extremely important to the fuel efficiency of planes. The lighter a plane, the less fuel it consumes. So what might happen if passengers on the whole started to weigh less? Well, using United Airlines as an example, one Jeffrey's Jeffrey's analyst found that it could save $80 million a year on fuel costs if every passenger lost 10 pounds. Neil, makes a lot of sense now that I think about it, but seeing that $80 million number on paper is still mind-boggling. Yeah, airlines have done everything possible to make their planes lighter because fuel is among their top two costs. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's no magazines anymore. The trays that the attendants bring down the aisles are lighter. So if everyone on the plane is just a little bit lighter, it could save them a lot of fuel costs. There's been 
a wave of analyst reports, I would just say in the past few days and past few weeks, talking about the quote unquote non-medical side effects of uh, Ozempic and Wagovi because these things, if adoption is as expected, these things are going to be so profound. Some analysts say that it could have as big an impact as AI. And when we talk about AI, you're like, okay, well, AI is going to be in the hardware business. It's going to affect literally everything. Everyone needs to talk about, everyone needs to infuse AI into their, their corporate strategies. And if you believe some of these analysts, people who are watching this industry, then the same thing is going to happen with Wagovi, Ozempic, and nearly every other weight loss drug that is coming onto the market. Yeah, the implications of a so-called slimmer society go far and wide. And let's just jump into the yeah. next industry. I want to talk about the showdown between big pharma and big food. So food companies have doubled down on snack foods recently. Remember, we just saw Smuckers buy Hostess for $5.6 billion last month as it moves further into kind of the unhealthy food aisle. But if Ozempic and other weight loss drugs are as effective as making people eat less as they appear to be, the snack food industry is in for a world of hurt. Morgan Stanley found that nearly 7% of the U.S. population could be taking one form of these weight loss drugs by 2035. And if that were to be the case, consumption of baked goods and other salty snacks could fall 3% or more. So big farmer versus big food, Neil. It's going to be a crazy one to watch. Yeah, and what was interesting, what happened this week on Monday was that Kellogg spun off its cereal business, which everyone knows it for, and created a new company called Kellanova that's literally just focused on snacks. This company has Cheez-Its, Pringles, and Rice Krispies treats. And uh, people are looking at this new company and saying, are you sure you really want to dive into these particular snack foods during this time of Ozempic and Wingovi, you know, curbing everyone's appetite? And the CEO gave, uh, gave an interview saying, we're by no means complacent. We're totally watching this. This is something we definitely have an eye on and we'll, we feel like we'll be able to adjust just as the food and snacking industry has adjusted to other regulations and other changes in consumer trends. And just yesterday, too, Walmart is already saying they're seeing an impact from Ozempic. Uh, this is a quote from John Ferner, their chief executive of Walmart's U.S. operations. We definitely do see a slight change compared to the total population. We do see a slight pullback in the overall basket, just less units, slightly less calories. So again, this is something that might not be happening super quickly uh, uh, or all at once, but slowly but surely, you see these caloric intake go down and the basket size go down. And that has large effects across Walmart, who has a massive grocery business. Right. And so they are the largest grocer in the <laughs> yeah. United States. There are some, you know, this is very hypothetical. This is all, this could happen. There, These are estimates. So this is not destined to happen. And why, what might not, why might not this happen? Well, cost is a factor because these, these uh, drugs are not yet insured and they may never be, and they can run $10,000 per year. So the, that 7% stat you cited at the top, that's on the you know bullish estimates. But if people can't really afford uh, these drugs, then... The, then this mass adoption, this mass disruption may never take place. I think they need to be insured for that to happen. Right, especially in the snack food industry where typically uh, lo on the lower income spectrum is the people who consume snacks. So it might be two different audiences, people who snack and the people who actually use Wagovis in, in Ozempic. So that's another thing to look forward to. Really widespread implications for this. We'll definitely be keeping an eye on it. For this next story, I want to talk about multiple news stories that we've discussed on previous episodes and want to give you an update on. We're naming this segment after everyone's favorite phrase to see in work emails, just circling back. The first story we're circling back on is the Kaiser Permanente healthcare strike we mentioned could happen on Monday's show. Well, 
it did happen. Yesterday morning, more than 75,000 workers at Kaiser Permanente walked off the job in five states and Washington, D.C. to pressure their employer to address issues like higher pay and staffing shortages. It is the largest healthcare strike in U.S. history and shows that this historic labor action that occurred during the summer is continuing its, its momentum into the fall, no matter the sector. This being a healthcare strike, it hits a lot closer to home for regular people. Kaiser Permanente patients might have non-emergency and elective services rescheduled, but the company says it's brought on thousands of temporary employees to keep critical operations running. Hospitals and emergency departments will stay open during the strike, which is expected to last three days. Toby, it seems like every week there's a biggest blank strike ever going on. What a year it's been for organized labor, and they have a lot to show for it. Yeah, I mean, more than 445,000 workers across all sectors have walked off the job at some point this year, which is not an insignificant amount by any means. Also, striking in healthcare is always, as you said, it, it does hit very close to home for a lot of people. It's also sometimes a controversial thing. There's been papers written on both sides. One argument is that the workers' obligations to their patients or society should make it so that this is one industry that shouldn't strike. But then the other side of the coin is these obligations are not absolute and they have just as much a right to better working conditions as any other industry. So again, there is always a debate whenever healthcare workers do walk out. Super interesting ethical argument there. Uh, but it's not just happening in the United States. Earlier this year in Britain, there was the largest ever national strike by healthcare workers. So this is an industry that, uh, you know, employees really need more help on because there's a mass exodus due to people being burnt out. Another story I want to circle back on is Maui's recovery from the wildfires that devastated the western part of the island almost exactly two months ago, if you can believe it. There's a great deal of conflict brewing right now over the governor's plan to open up sections of West Maui to tourism again, beginning on Sunday. The governor, Josh Green, said it's critical for the island's economic recovery to get tourists back after the number of visitors plunged 70% after the fire. And we know how reliant Maui is on tourism for jobs and its overall economy. But many Maui locals say they're not in a place yet to put on a smiling face for outsiders when they haven't had enough time to grieve the 97 people who were killed in the fires and left many others without shelter. More than 14,000 people have signed a petition asking the state to delay its phased reopening in West Maui, saying they're not emotionally ready. So once again, we're seeing this tricky balancing act for officials as they try to kick the economic engine back into gear and be respectful of locals who lost everything and are already frustrated with the government response to the disaster. Yeah, there's also a ton of housing tension there right now because there's still 8,000 people living in temporary shelters. So should we open up uh, tourism when these hotel properties are being used to house people who lost everything in those fires? But then there's also some people, I was reading some local Hawaii kind of tourism publications saying that there's been some bad messaging around this and even predating the, the fires and that tourism was down in Maui even before the fires happened. And so now that a lot of people think that all of Hawaii is kind of burned down, just based off the coverage that we mm -hmm. saw globally. And so now everyone is saying we need better messaging. Like we still are open for tourism, even though like we want to be respectful for everyone. These are just long festering problems that have, you know, comes that manifested right now because the locals in Maui for many years have, have chafed at the amount of tourism coming in and destroying local ecosystems. But you know, it, they rely on, tourism for four out of five of every dollar. So the for the economy to rebuild, uh, public officials are saying we got to get people back. 
They want, Maui locals want this to be a new a time to revisit this dependence on tourism. Okay, to switch gears completely in our final circling backstory, remember that wave of lawsuits accusing fast food restaurants of false advertising, of making their burgers seem bigger and juicier in marketing materials than they are in real life? Two companies just defeated that challenge. A judge in Brooklyn dismissed a suit brought by a customer against Wendy's and McDonald's about burger size exaggeration, saying he didn't see a problem with the chains using appetizing images to foster positive association with their products. The judge also said it wasn't clear that the plaintiff even saw the ads he was referring to. Other fast food chains are still fighting their own false advertising legal battles, but this is a win for critics who called these lawsuits kind of a waste of everyone's time. Yeah, the judge literally said that the McDonald's and Wendy's food images, which were the case in this particular case, are no different than other companies' use of visually appealing images. It was interesting that the legal argument was like, oh, everyone else does it, so these people are fine doing it too. And then they also said they provided more objective information about it, like weight and caloric content of those of those things. We kind of knew that this was never going to actually be a lawsuit, but it is a growing area of law. Fast food litigation is the fastest growing area of law, some people say. So it is interesting to see this kind of rush kind of a gold mine people think that maybe we can get them on this advertising angle and it's kind of a, a gold rush in terms of litigation there is a there is a similar lawsuit against burger king that was allowed to proceed so it's not all it's not all dead yet yeah there we go all right neil let's take a quick break but don't go anywhere because we've got three more stories including neil's numbers coming up right after this Neil, our next story is another little roundup segment. This time, we're bringing you some cool new startups that we've come across recently that we think you all might enjoy. Up first, we've got a good old-fashioned arms race to see which AI company can figure out wearable AI first. Let's meet the players. One company called Rewind.ai just released its Rewind Pendant, which is a $59 necklace you wear around your neck that records conversations so you can create a sort of searchable database of all the stuff you've listened to or said during the day. Another company is called Tab, which also created a wearable device that, quote, ingests the context of your daily life by listening to your conversations. These two devices were launched within days and hours of each other, actually, and so that clearly founders think the future of AI is something that can interface with the outside world. Do these just make turn your life into a podcast episode? It's I do not like it. I mean, a lot of the, the Rewind company has really, really pushing the safety and the uh, security aspect of it, and like your data won't be leaked anywhere. But it is so eerie to th imagine people recording every single right. minute of their days and then saving those recordings for later. There's, there's got to be ethical implications of it, too. Of course. Re Rewind said on its website that you could not uh, record someone without their consent. But I was doing some snooping. I didn't quite understand how that would happen. They did pitch it as a device that you could use as an executive or another member of a team who is recording a meeting and instead of taking notes you could just have your meeting and then revisit it later and it'll transcribe everything for you so that's one of the use cases it also mentioned people one of its target audiences was people with adhd who are constantly moving from one task to the next so that's who they're pitching it to but you're right this is an arms race uh for creating the next smartphone really the next piece of hardware that could unlock this ai software boom and everyone from these startups to big players like meta and apple are trying 
trying to unlock it. Yeah, the big fish in the pond is also Humane, uh, which is led by a former Apple employee that has an AI pin, which comes with a projector that you can use to interface. Right. It appears on your hand. So that's a big company with a lot of funding. And the other big fish is obviously OpenAI, who are reportedly in talks with the former Apple designer, Johnny Ive, to create a wearable device. So again, I call it an arms race. I do think we're going to see more and more of these new interfacing uh AI objects. But okay, that's enough AI. Let's move on to our next startup, which is a company called Habit, spelled with a Y. Of course. <laughs> of course, very startup-y, which is an Airbnb-esque platform that aims to connect people interested in longer stays than the typical a Airbnb duration. Longer stays meaning in that six to nine months range. Neil, we're a bit chained to this podcast desk, but in the age of remote work, I can see this being super appealing to a certain subset yeah, of people. Yeah, this is a big round, $42 million and it's valued, it, it re last raised money at $200 million, and now it's going to be worth a lot more than that. So this is a fairly large startup, and they're trying to weasel into that middle space between Airbnb with its short-term short stays and actually just renting a house or an apartment. And it cites the fact that people can't really afford housing right now as one reason why this might be attractive and it's targeting digital nomads. Uh, so if you believe that the future of work is flexible and hybrid and remote, then this might be a company that you might be bullish on. Yeah. And then also they get to avoid that short-term rental controversy that Airbnb and VRBO, we saw it in New York City that there was this big crackdown on short-term rentals. So they are kind of threading the needle between actually long-term rentals and short-term. So habit with a Y, <laughs> a name to watch. And finally, for our last startup, we have Blackbird, which is a restaurant reward platform founded by the co-founder of Resi and Eater. Essentially, Blackbird incentivizes eating out by having patrons tap their phone when they dine at a restaurant, kind of like how you sign in at the gym, in order to keep track of regulars and reward people who frequent a spot. Neil, I love this idea because yeah. I absolutely eat at the same restaurants a lot, and I'd love to build up some rewards points or get access to off-menu items items like Blackbird offers. Right. The founder, uh, his name is Leventhal. And I mean, he has a first name too. His name is, his first name is Ben. Um, he is saying that he wants to build something for independent restaurants, something along the lines of the loyalty programs that you see at chains like Dunkin' Donuts and Starbucks and Sweetgreen and things like that. But they just don't have the bandwidth to connect with customers in the way that these massive chains do. So if you go to these restaurants multiple times, you get a free cocktail and then you get a free appetizer and you can build up rewards points points over time at particular restaurants. I personally wouldn't use it because you know that I like to go to very, a lot of different restaurants. I don't like to go to the same one because we live in New York City. There's so many different ones, but you find a place, you love it, and yeah. it would be great for you to be able to build some sort of loyalty with, with these restaurants and get some sort of uh, rewards. Yeah, I love it. And you can get so creative with it too. Some restaurants were giving away bomber jackets. Not It's not just food items. Like You can create a rewards program however you want in your own, uh, using your own creativity. So I do like that aspect. All right, I'm going to put you on the spot. Which of these three startups that we profiled, say you're an, say you're an investor, you're Andreessen Horowitz, which one do you, do you plug? I go, first of all, not financial advice. That's our, that's our, yeah. uh, uh, disclaimer, but I would actually go with Blackbird just because very experienced founder knows the space extremely well. And it's something personally that I identify with. So those are enough boxes checked in my opinion. And for that reason, Toby is in. <laughs> okay. Let's move on. Welcome back to Neil's Numbers, the segment where I share three stats from the week's news that will help you liven up any dinner party conversation. 
For the first number, let's head to Singapore, where buying a car is laughably expensive. Just the price of the certificate that gives you the right to own a car has surged to an all-time high of $106,000, equivalent to four Toyota Camry hybrids in the US. The reason you need to buy a certificate to buy a car is because Singapore, a small city-state that can be driven across in less than an hour, has limited the number of vehicles on the road to less than a million. This quota and rising demand for vehicles coming out of the pandemic has put owning a car out of reach for most middle-income people. Government-subsidized flat in Singapore costs $125,000, so it literally costs more to own a car than it does to own a place to live. It is truly crazy to see these numbers out there. And it's not just cars that are expensive in Singapore. The city ranks number one in the most expensive cities in the world, according to the annual report from the Julius Bayer Lifestyle Index. So it is very pricey to live there. And anecdotally, Abby, who's an editor at Morning Brew, used to live in Hong Kong, has heard a lot of people moving back from Singapore to Hong Kong because it's just not affordable at all. So my second number is 104. That's how old a Chicago woman named Dorothy Hoffner is. And what makes her newsworthy is that she skydived from a plane last weekend, likely setting the Guinness World Record for oldest person to skydive. How does a 104-year-old even get into skydiving? Well, Dorothy says she's not a thrill seeker, but she is adventurous. Her interest in skydiving began when she developed a friendship with a nurse named Joe at her senior living center in Chicago. Joe mentioned he was going skydiving, and of course, as we all would at 104 years old, Dorothy said, can I come along? Anyway, on Sunday, Hoffner stuck the landing, and the company that took her skydiving is talking with Guinness about getting it certified as a world record jump. Toby, this woman was born in 1918, right after World War One, and she's been around for two global pandemics, the Spanish flu and COVID. That is insane. We talked about blue zones on this show before, Neil, which is places where a disproportionate amount of people live to be uh, an advanced age. Maybe skydiving is one of those things that just help you live longer, because clearly it's working for Dorothy. When we are 104, the only place we're going to be skydiving is in the metaverse. I, hope I am not. not a, are you into skydiving? No, absolutely uh, not. Yeah, me neither. Never. I'm never doing that. Okay, for my final number, let's talk about the Nobel Prizes that are being announced this week and their relationship with immigration. Economist Adam Ozmek pointed out that the U.S. has won 75% of the Nobel Prizes so far this year in the fields of chemistry, physics, and medicine. But that's mainly thanks to immigrants. Without immigrants, the U.S. would have won just 25% of those Nobel Prizes. On Tuesday, we talked about Kataline Carrico, uh, who shared the Nobel Prize for pioneering M MNRA re vaccine research. She emigrated to Philadelphia from Hungary. And yesterday, more immigrants to the United States won Nobel Prizes in chemistry. Three scientists, two of whom moved to the US from France and the Soviet Union, won the prize for discovering what are known as quantum dots, semiconductors so small that the difference between them and a soccer ball is about the same as the difference between a soccer ball and Earth. Quantum dots have lots of commercial applications from increasing the resolution of your TV to biomedicine and solar cells. But really the point of this stat is to highlight how effective attracting smart people to your country is as a policy tool. Yeah, it's always one of those things we talk about brain drain from other countries and we end up benefiting it from the most where the smartest people from around the world often end up in the US. And the fact that without the uh, immigrants, we would have only won 25% of the prizes that we won. Truly, truly, is it's crazy to see it put that way. All right, Neil, for our last story of the day, let's move on to something near and dear to my heart, and that is the Men's World Cup. While it feels like we were just celebrating Messi's historic win in the last competition, we have some news about the 2030 edition that broke yesterday, and it's going to be unlike any tournament before it. The 2030 Men's World Cup is set to feature games in six countries on three continents in honor of the 100th 
anniversary of the tournament. The countries are Spain, Portugal, Morocco, Argentina, Paraguay, and Uruguay. All six will get automatic entry into the tournament, which will be the first time a World Cup will be played on different continents. Neil, I'm actually all for this idea because I think the days of a single host country will grow less and less mm -hmm. frequent, but certain fan groups are up in arms about what the extra travel means for supporters. Do you think spreading the World Cup across countries and continents could be the future, or is this... this I think fail? this is a bit of a trick... <laughs> because what happens is what they th this is all about 2034 and who wants 2034 and who is likely to get it Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia is very tight with FIFA they are doing this whole move into into soccer and other sports and they are eyeing 2034 and what this does by spreading the world cup across all these different countries and continents is it just clears out everyone else for Saudi Arabia to get that bid in 2034 so I'm cynical as one should always be <laughs> with FIFA but this is a play for for Saudi Arabia right only the member federations from Asia and Oceania will be eligible to host the yep. bid because North America is getting the one uh, 2026 six world cup that's coming up and then now you have europe africa and south america also getting the world cup so only asia and oceania are left in saudi arabia is a member of one of those federations but i also do think that the idea that putting the world cup on one country and one country only is just too big a financial burden the big example i point to is that brazil spent over three billion on 12 new renovated stadiums and the biggest stadium of all which was located in brasilia cost 550 million dollars it's now being used as a bus parking lot. Yeah. So again, putting this financial burden on just a singular country, which often ends up not even being worth it because the stadiums go into disuse versus spreading it out across multiple countries, I think is actually a smarter financial right. decision for, for people. And there were countries. climate groups that warned about the environmental impact of all of this travel. That may happen. We'll see how that plays out. But there's a converse to that, which is maybe countries and fans won't need to travel as far because there will be games that are played closer to home. But I should just mention that these games are not going to be played equitably across South America and North Africa and Europe. They're just going to be the first debut games in South America, which is where the first World Cup was held in Uruguay, which yeah. is a little bit of interesting trivia in 1930. And then it'll move to North Africa, Spain, and mm -hmm. Portugal for the remainder of the games. And it'll be much bigger. If, if you thought the World Cup was not big enough, well, it's only getting bigger. Starting uh, in the next tournament, they're going to have 48 teams and 104 games. So this is just going to be a, an extravaganza unlike any other. But the World Cup I'm paying attention to is the Cricket World Cup. It's starting today in India. <laughs> we just had the Rugby World Cup. Now we're into the Cricket World Cup. I love it. All right, that is all the time we have for the show. I can taste Friday. I can literally taste it. It tastes like chicken wings. <laughs> mm. As always, we love when you write in with your thoughts on the show. You can direct those thoughts to morningbrewdaily at morningbrew.com. Let's roll the credits. Emily Milliron is our editor and producer. Sam Velez and Raymond Liu are our associate producers. Uchenua Ogu is our technical director. Billy Menino is on audio. Hair and makeup went skydiving. Devin Emery is our chief content officer, and our show is a production of Morning Brew. Great show today, Neil. Let's run it back tomorrow.